Hey, Boss Files listeners, Poppy Harlow here. Ever had a Shake Shack? Are you hungry? I'm hungry. Well, you are about to meet the people behind it. Danny Meyer, of course, he built Union Square Hospitality Group. They're behind restaurants like Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern here in New York. But he also founded Shake Shack by accident. Fast forward to the summer of 2001, we had opened two restaurants on Madison Square Park. And we really, really wanted to rebuild a park that had gone into great disrepair. And we raised a bunch of money to do that. And one of the things that crossed our mind was if you're going to have a great looking park, you better give people a reason to use it. And art was was our answer. So we got this artist from Thailand. He came up with the idea of having taxi cabs on stilts with a working hot dog cart, asked us to do it. And we said, we'll do it and we'll contribute the money to the park. And after three years of doing that successfully, where we had lines of 100 people waiting for a hot dog, we said, let's turn this into a full-time kiosk. And we named it Shake Shack. Well, today, Shake Shack is run by CEO Randy Garudi. Danny and Randy go way, way back. Like, Danny met Randy when Randy was 19 years old, but he saw a passion in him. And they've had this sort of mentor-mentee relationship for years now, learning from one another. Well, Randy took Shake Shack public, and you know how it has expanded. The growth has just been incredible to watch all over the world. Before we even had 10 Shake Shacks, we opened in Dubai. Now, 40% of our company is overseas. So we dive deep on Shake Shack, the business, what they're trying to do ahead, and all sorts of things like wages and equality. Nothing pisses me off more, Poppy, than when people use the term flipping burgers as the lowest form of work. And also, what about plant-based items on the menu? And of course, some of their best memories. There has been an email from Sam Cass, who had been the chef in the White House. The subject line says, good news and bad news. And it says, The good news is I'm off tonight. The bad news is you're working. President named Barack Obama, First Lady, you're coming to your restaurant Maialino tonight. I've got news for you right now. You better figure this out. We recorded this conversation of Boss Files at CNN here in New York City. It was very cool. Our first live Boss Files in front of my fellow employees from CNN and Warner Media. So let's get right to it. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Poppy. We're the, really excited. I'm really excited, too. Danny, let, let me just begin with this. True or false, you wear weird glasses and run around and watch people eat your food. Is this true? <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. That is true. Those that is aren't true. that weird, yeah. by the way. I think I have those glasses. <laughs> Absolutely true. Nothing gives me more pleasure than watching people eat. And I know that sounds a little bit bizarre. A little but creepy, Dan. I act, it, it's, but I don't do it in a creepy way. I do it in, a, in the most loving way, <laughs> most appreciative way. There you go. True or false, Randy? You have eaten a thousand Shake Shack burgers. Way more than that. How That's many? Over this year. Oh no. Uh, look, we've been doing this for about fifteen years. Uh, probably once a week at least. Yeah. Let's do the math on that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, that's pretty good. I intend to keep going. Okay. <laughs> Raise your hand in the audience if you have not ever eaten Shake Shack. Not a... Yes. One, two. Okay. Come that, on down. That, <laughs> that might change today. We'll, we'll, see if, <laughs> we'll see about that. But raise your hand if you have eaten Shake Shack. Something from there. I mean, I think that, that, that says a lot for our listeners. That's like everyone but two in the room. Um, let's talk about, Randy, why does this work? There are a lot of places that make burgers and fries and shakes. Why does it actually work? Yeah, we certainly didn't invent the hamburger. And uh, we won't be the last people to make a great one. We're fond of saying that. Look, I think when Shake Shack was born as a hot dog cart in 2001, and then in 2004 became this kiosk that we thought we'd sell a few hot dogs, um, I think we just hit on a moment. Think back in time. At that time, nobody knew what an iPhone was, and Facebook was just being created. And if you were really cool, you stood online at Shake Shack with your BlackBerry. That was me. I yeah, still yeah. like my BlackBerry. And it was a moment where people were deciding. Or, or your Motorola. <laughs> I want to know where my food comes from. Okay. 
but I still love hanging out with my community, being with hospitable, nice people, and eating a great cheeseburger. At a moment where all of a sudden we also decided we were going to start sharing everywhere we go, all the time, with people we don't know and mm-hmm. everyone we know. Mm-hmm. And Shake Shack just hit this community gathering moment of people coming together in the easiest, most comfortable, simple way. And it's resonating around the world. I think we have some photos that we can put up. Okay, so that is the beginning. That's the hot dog cart. That's 2001. The, that's where it started. Danny, why don't you pick up? And then we, do we have the napkin plan photo as well? I think we might as well. Is this business on? Yeah, well, that's 2004. That? Let's go back to 2001 for all right, a second. Because that's kind of where it all started. So we were always a fine dining restaurant group, Union Square Hospitality Group. And Randy and I started working together when he was about 19. He became the general manager of our Indian restaurant called Tabla. And then he became the general manager of our flagship, we call it the Mother Yeast uh, Union Square Cafe. And then over time, in a very, very young age, Randy started being the uh, director of operations for all of our places. Now, fast forward to the summer of 2001, we had opened two restaurants on Madison Square Park, 11 Madison Park and Tabla. And we really, really wanted to rebuild a park that had gone into great disrepair. It was dangerous. It wasn't beautiful. And we raised a bunch of money to do that. And one of the things that crossed our mind was if you're going to have a great looking park, you better give people a reason to use it. And art was was our answer. So we got this artist from Thailand. He came up with the idea of having taxi cabs on stilts with a working hot dog cart, asked us to do it. Yep. And we said, we'll do it and we'll contribute the money to the park. And after three years of doing that successfully, where we had lines of 100 people waiting for a hot dog, we said, let's turn this into a full-time kiosk. And we named it Shake Shack. We gifted it to the park so the park would become the landlord. And we said, if this thing works, it'll attract people to the park, keep it safe, and a few pennies from every dollar will go right back into the park. We had no plans to make this a business. But today, the park, Madison Square Park, earns over $800,000 a year just from that original Just from the shack. rent. And we got a nice original. business out of it. Yeah, I think you got an okay business out of it. <laughs> what a story. So that's 2001. Obviously, we all know what happened. So 2004 yeah. was the year we, we said, let's scribble out a, a menu on a piece of paper real quickly. So let's pull that back. Are you two together at this point? We are. So I'm running um, the one of the restaurants at the time for the hot dog cart. Tabla and 11 Madison Park were there. 11 Madison Park, one of the great restaurants of the world. Tabla was this amazing, cool place. And Danny comes up and says, you guys got to deal with this hot dog cart. And we're like, oh, God, Danny, like... We're running restaurants here. We're kind of busy. Well, so you didn't, hot dog you, wait, you didn't, it, Randy, you didn't want the job. Even in the beginning, we all were like, oh my God, because it, hundreds of people lined up and it became a really complicated thing. For three years, we did that. And then Shake Shack was born in 2004. At that time, I'm working with Union Square Cafe and all of our restaurants, and I'm wearing a suit, serving expensive wine. You're I'm trying to be fancy. Tavern. I'm trying to do it all, but I keep finding myself at the burger joint. Flipping burgers, toasting buns, because I just loved hanging out there. You had experience. So you worked in a bagel shop. I started making $3.50 an hour hour when I was 13 years old in a bagel shop in New Jersey. You worked at Chili's. I worked at Chili's where I made $6 an hour working the taco fry station. Mm -hmm. And I've worked at God knows how many restaurants all over the country before I met this guy. I mean, I ask you that because the most I think I ever learned in a job, I'm not kidding you this, about people was working at Amoco Gas Station. In Minnesota, I was 13 years old. You could work then. I made a good amount of money. And I learned about people and how they judge you and look at you in different scenarios and what they care about and what they say and what's on their mind. So how did those jobs prepare you for this one? They were everything. And, and you know, I was lucky enough to travel around the world when I was in college and study in Paris and go around learning about people. And in all the restaurants we've ever learned, I think everyone, I think it should be a law that every person should have to work in a restaurant at some point in their life. Um, I want to hear the Obama story. Can you share the President Obama? At Shake Shack? I don't think it's a Shake Shack story, but I've We've got heard one you of those too. Talk. Okay, I want them both very quickly. All right, well, okay, I, I think you, you mean when, when Obama up? came to Mylino. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, that was a pretty cool thing. I, it was a Friday afternoon, and um, I was just sitting down with my assistant to talk about next week. And... Um, 
and she was great about getting me away from my computer so that we could really focus. And I said, I just want to go back to the computer one more time to check something. And there had been an email from Sam Cass, who had been the chef in the White House. And um, the, the subject line says, good news and bad news. So I've got to open that. So I open up the email on Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and it says, the good news is I'm off tonight. The bad news is you're working. <laughs> and call me. So I called him on the phone, and he said, They're um, coming. Yeah, six of them are coming, President First Lady, Valerie Jarrett, Ahmad Rashad, another couple. They're coming to your restaurant, Mylena, tonight. And I've got news for you right now. You better figure this out. Every Friday night, the president treats himself to a good steak. Every Friday night, the president treats himself to a martini. And here's how he likes his martini. Not shaken. You just got to get, I would get two of your best bottles of vodka in the freezer immediately. Do not open them or he will not be allowed to drink it. And, sure. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, my God, we just took steak off the menu at Mylena. Oh my God. And he, he, goes, he goes, you're not allowed to tell anyone about this. Secret Service has the whole place cased out already. So at that second, the general manager of Union Square Cafe happened to be one office away. And I said, you guys still have that great steak from where, Cedar where? Farms. Yeah, I said, I need one sent up to Mayalino. They'll pay you. Don't worry about it within 30 minutes. So we get it there. So now I'm trying to get to the restaurant to go see the president. And he's got his dinner right before going to see Raisin in the Sun. And I instructed the staff. I said, look, I don't know who gets the check, but, <laughs> but whoever gets the oh, check. Yeah. Whoever we gets all, the we check, all got the check. Whoever gets the check, you have to have it down no later than 7.20 because we cannot make the president late to go see his play. So I can't, I'm not even allowed to walk through Gramercy Park to get to Mylena because of all the police. <laughs> it took a neighbor vouching for me to the policeman. Like to, he owns he the He really does. So they finally let me in the place. I get scanned with the wand and everything. And I'm now kind of like at the bar just kind of like taking in. It's really cool. Everybody's like, like looking around to see the president. All of a sudden, a Secret Service agent comes up to me and says, um, Mr. Meyer, the president wants to see you right now. Okay, yes, sir. So I walk back to the president's table, and in front of the entire restaurant, he stands up, puts his arm around me, and he says, do you realize I would not be president if it weren't for your grandfather? And the entire restaurant it was like E.F. Hutton had arrived or something. <laughs> They're just all looking up. And it turned out my, my late grandfather and the first time I had met Obama was at my grandfather's funeral uh, when he was 94, had schooled uh, a young man who was running to become state senator of Illinois named Barack Obama in zero to three brain science, early childhood education, and then sponsored him like crazy to become a U.S. senator, and he had never forgotten that. Now, check isn't down by – check is down by by 720, but they keep talking. They're talking till 7.30. They're and talking till 7.40. President. And I'm going like, I go to the Secret Service agent at 7.45. I said, we can't make the president miss his play. And the guy looks at me and he goes, you don't think, you think there's going to be traffic for the president? <laughs> <laughs> you, you think they're going to, you think they're not, you think that curtain, he has to be the last one in the theater and they are not starting without, without him. him. We got this covered. <laughs> It is a great story. You want to top it? With I can't your... beat that, but I'll be quick. Okay. <laughs> the Secret Service calls us and says, President Obama, Vice President Biden, love how you're taking care of your team. They're headed to Shake Shack in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. in 10 minutes. Get ready. And we're like, wah! And they roll in. Obama, we have the greatest picture. Puts his body on the counter in between. He puts it. He slides across and just starts hugging our staff. And saying thank you. Some of the greatest pictures we ever have that changed people's lives that day. And they just wanted to highlight the kind of cool stuff we were doing to take care of our team and have a couple burgers. There so, you go. Fun. More from our conversation with Danny and Randy after the break. Danny, we're going to get to your personal story in, in a minute. 
but about Shake Shack on this journey first, I was stunned to hear you say to another journalist what you admire about McDonald's. Well, what I admire about McDonald's is that they came up with a business model that broke any business model there to four. They basically took the old happy days model, which is parking lots used as a congregation community gathering place because when we all turned 16, we got a driver's license back home in St. Louis. We didn't have a place to to get out of the house other than going to a parking lot. And you picked a parking lot. You could have picked the parking lot connected to the library or you could have picked the parking lot connected to the frozen custard place or the drive-in burger place. And that's the one we generally picked. What fast food did was they kind of took that model in a whole different direction. And they said, forget about the community gathering place. We're going to get it to you faster and cheaper and get you out real quickly. And so I do admire that they figured out a way to do that globally. They figured out a way to do it consistently with, with all their systems. What we did at Shake Shack was we simply exchanged a park for the classic parking lot. And we said, people still want to be with people. We don't really have a driving culture in Manhattan. So let's see if it works in a park. And it did. But I do admire that anytime somebody in business provides a solution to a problem that you didn't even know you had, like like people being in a rush and people not having enough money, yes. that's a cool thing. Do you want to beat McDonald's? No. You don't want to be McDonald's? No. You chose to expand. It's a very different business model. And I can, be, I can be real clear about it. McDonald's is winning at a game called the rule of two. And the rule of two says in life you can have quality speed, or price. You can have any two of those three. And McDonald's says, here's the deal. You're going to get speed and price. Obviously, you're not going to get naturally raised beef, anti, you know, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. You can't. Everybody gets that. That's cool. What we're doing is a whole different deal, which is it's still the rule of two, but we're just saying whoever wrote the rule that it has to be one plus one plus zero so we're going 0.65% of the time savings, 0.65% of, um, of the dollar savings, and we're going to give you 0.70 of the quality. And that's a new way of looking at it because we came from fine dining. You know what I think at least half the people in this room want to know because they emailed me and they saw the announcement and the invite to this to ask you guys. And I know many people have asked you a similar question before. Uh, but I wonder if you can answer this one. What it, where is your head on offering plant-based burgers and shakes? Uh, like, is that just not your game, or is that going to be half your menu in a few years? Well, I, well, here's what's important. When people choose to eat a burger, it should be a really good one. They should know where it's come from. They should know that it's got no hormones, no antibiotics. We're in such an exciting moment of learning more about food, learning about continuing to understand the impact on our world, which we are very well aware of. And every decision Shake Shack has made to stand for something good for 15 years. We, from day one, look up there, see Shroom Burger, one of our top selling menu items is a vegetarian option. But not vegan. Not vegan. So today, if you go to our innovation kitchen in the West Village, we're testing our own creation of plants, real vegetables, 13 different vegetables, grains, and herbs. And for the moment, we're not interested in plant-based as others are doing. It's super exciting. We're watching it really closely and most importantly, listen to our guests. But we've always, we've made a, we've made a business out of creating our own things that are real, that stand for something good. And we think there's going to be a lot of movement continuing towards that as we go. All right. I, I want to elaborate on that. I agree with 100% of what Randy just said. We both are, are obviously noticing and, uh, and watching just how this notion of a laboratory-created plant-based meat substitute is taking off. And you're seeing massive chains saying, great, we want to put that on our menu. Makes sense. We can afford it. It's consistent. It comes out of the freezer. It's going to taste the same. Who wouldn't want that kind of consistency? That's not what Shake Shack was born doing. Shake Shack was born creating. So we're just simply asking ourselves, maybe there's a market for plant-based vegetables, not just plant-based meat substitutes. 
Well, there's that. But you know what I'm hearing in that answer? And you can tell me if I'm totally off. But if I'm sitting here, the CEO of Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger, I'm thinking you guys have enough capital. You certainly have the will and you have this innovation kitchen you just told me about. Are you building a competitor to Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat? That's not where we're focused today. We're focused on real vegetables and we know them well. They're great companies and we never say never. There may become a day where yeah. we could work with one of those companies to do something great. Today, we want to work our chefs who come from Gramercy Tavern, who come from Danny's Fine Dining Restaurants, are constantly tinkering, even this morning, talking about it. How can we do our own version of that that satisfies you when you want to eat vegetarian, when you want to eat vegan? You know, for me, I eat a lot of burgers, like you said. And every now and then, I want a really good veggie burger. I, Yesterday, I, that I, was my lunch. I'll say one other thing, which is that when you're an entrepreneur, you're not out really to try to do what everybody else is doing. You, I, th I think what, what you find as a through line with many, many entrepreneurs is what do we have to add to the dialogue that's fresh, that people have not yet seen? And, and so in a weird way, the massive success of these laboratory-created plant-based meat substitutes is actually making us even more resolute to give you a reason you need to come to us because you can't get the thing we do everywhere else. What about the issue of climate change? I mean, Randy just brought up doing what's best for the world. And we, look, my brother daily, Matt, shout out here, tries to convince me to become a vegetarian. I'm not because of, uh, you know, how much energy it takes to raise cattle, for example. Well, where's your head on that? I think it's a huge part of our uh, business and always has been. Look, we understand we serve beef is our number one product. We also serve a lot of really well-raised chicken, a lot of vegetable vegetables and other things. And I think uh, it goes back to what I said. When you choose to eat a burger, make it a really good one. And we're constantly thinking about how we can do things better. We have a burger that we're serving right now mm -hmm. in um, Northern California only mm -hmm. that is done with a small farm that's doing regenerative farming that is raising animals the right way. And our stand has always been no antibiotics, no hormones, stand for something good. Understanding our core product is hamburgers, and they're really good, and you should feel okay eating one. And we're going to continue to listen to our guests and march towards more and more options if that's how you want to eat. And it'll be up to you. What did you see in Randy? What's unique about the two of you is how young you met and that it's a founder-CEO relationship and mentor-mentee relationship. Can I say that a little bit? What, yeah, what's, and I would what? say that, that like any great mentor-mentee, the learning goes both ways. So what did Randy teach you, Danny? Um, well, the first question you asked is, what did I see in Randy? Yeah. And I, I saw a guy who was just, he was like a, a young colt going like this at the starting <laughs> gate. Just couldn't, couldn't wait to run. Do you love that depiction? And I'll take that. No, it, it's true. And I had gotten a call from a, a really well-respected restaurateur in Seattle um, who I didn't really know that well at the time. And, and he said two things. I got a guy who's going to be a big star in your company. And if you ask me one question about him, I'm not going to send him your way. Just meet him. That, that was it. Wow. So I said, can I ask one question? <laughs> and, and he said, I, and my question was, when can I meet him? <laughs> and, that was 20 years ago. And Randy, Randy had been... Uh, I guess roommates at uh, Cornell with with his son, and then had started working at their restaurant in Seattle, Canlis. And Randy took his car and drove across the country, and we had an interview. And I didn't have a job, but but he blew my socks off. And and I said, the minute we have a job, you're in. And it didn't take more than three or four months to make a job happen. As a matter of fact, you know, sometimes really good talent is kind of like an adult tooth. It pushes the baby tooth out, even though the baby tooth might not be ready to come out. And, huh. and so I felt bad for the baby tooth, but we made way for the... You for made the, way for the adult and, tooth. And then, you know what, from every, every step of the way, there's somebody, um, Randy is someone who is fun to work with, um, tough as nails, learns things very, very quickly, stubborn as the day is long. Um, we, we have it out all the time, but it's never, we never have it out about anything cultural. We never have it out about how to treat people, how to, how to care for suppliers, how to care for communities, and how to, how to care for guests. Um, and, and it's great. One thing that I understand you have actually taught, Danny, 
and Shake Shack as a whole has taught Danny is how to let go. It's hard, right? Like, but people hate being micromanaged. And when you trust other people to do things, then you become better and the company becomes better. I think the way I would say that is what Danny has taught me and everybody about what I see as a definitional leadership. Leadership is all day, every day, telling everyone what's important to you. 20 years of working together, there's nothing that could ever happen that I don't know what he would think, ever. And you know what? It's because every day, today included, he's telling me what's important to him. Sometimes the same time. Sometimes like I'm telling my kids, yeah, yeah, I got to brush your teeth. I'm like, yeah, dad, I know. Yeah, yeah, I got it, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. And that's what leadership is. And that's how you let go. That's how any leader grows. It's how we've scaled mm. Shake Shack to today 276 shacks around the world. I, I don't think this hasn't been reported very much, but what I find very interesting in just sort of embodying these values is how Shake Shack went public. Um, you know, allowing employees, managers to buy in at the strike price, which doesn't usually happen. What, Danny, what can you tell me about that decision and how it worked out? Because you got, you got wealthy off of it. A lot of people got wealthy off of it. But you know what happens in IPOs? A lot of the people that built it, they don't. Mm. What was different about this? Yeah, well, that mattered a lot. Uh, understand that um, on our board, and, and I've, I've been on boards that were, quote, unquote, conscious capitalist companies. And we have board members between U- USHG and, and Shake Shack of, you know, people from Whole Foods and the container store. Um, and uh, it, it was always important for me to ask this question, where many, many companies have lost their culture as they grew. We asked our questions, how can we use our growth to advance our culture? And what that meant, if you look at life through that lens, then you have to stick to your knitting and say, the minute we don't make a decision with employees first, customers second, community third, suppliers fourth, and investors fifth, in the belief that that's the best way to take care of investors, the minute we stop making decisions like that, we will have lost our soul. Randy had a sign in his office um, for the longest time. It's still right, it's still right around right. the corner. All right, good. What does it say? Still, the bigger we get, the smaller we have to act. What does that mean? And it means in every way we need to say, you're the, you're the head of that restaurant, you're that Shake Shack. That's the only one that matters in the world. Don't worry about those other ones. You're thinking about doing a collaboration with a great chef. You're thinking about designing a restaurant in Korea. However you do it. The bigger we get, the smaller we have to act. When we think about supply chain, the issues that are very real for us, the hardest things we have to deal with, the bigger we act, the bigger we get, the smaller we have to act. I want to go back to your question for a minute. So when it came time to to having an IPO, um, and this gets back to one of the things Randy has has taught me, which is that it can be safe to grow. I was was afraid to grow. We didn't have a second anything before there was— a decade— well, we didn't have a second restaurant for a decade, which became Gramercy Tavern after Union Square Cafe. But even with Shake Shack, we didn't do a. Se- we had never done a second version of any one restaurant till Shake Shack was five years old. So I was like, I like writing novels, but I wasn't so good at paperbacks. And and Randy really helped me to see that that you can do that and get better as you grow. But and and we just, you know, we we see things eye to eye. We pushed back on the bankers. The bankers had never seen that amount of allocation of stock go to employees you, rather than to their favorite. Can, uh, can you guys take me in that room and the, you're on the road show, right? And you're talking to bankers and we, you know, Wall Street doesn't typically like to come fifth, do they? No. And it's not, it doesn't have to be ordered that way. It, it's a virtuous cycle. And it means it's not a totem pole where you're on the bottom. If we start by taking care of our team and our guests, and our community, and our suppliers, you will be rewarded as a shareholder. And we, we have to look at them and say, you want us to do this. It's like when people today challenge me as a Wall Street investor to say, uh, you know, your, your investments are really a lot. You know, yeah, we got to invest in our people. We need to pay people well. We need to give our general managers stock every year so what, they're owners of this What company. is the average salary um for a Shake Shack employee, the people I encounter at the counter. Yeah. Um, I know it's different in New York City, it depends but... On the, it depends on the shack in the region. Our average person, obviously here, we start you at $15 an hour. In other places, it's a little bit less. It depends on the market. Here's what matters. Is it though. always above the state minimum wage? Not always, and it depends on where, but here's what matters about that. Our job 
is to get you out of that job. Yeah. Our job is day one to say, you're going to start here. It's 15 bucks an hour. We're going to take you here. And this week I was in Orlando. We have five restaurants in that area. Three of our leaders down there, three have been with Shake Shack for more than 10 years, now have families, they own homes, one had just had their third child. That is someone who started making $8 an hour 12 years ago and has seen what this company can do. And that's our biggest job. That's our biggest thing that we can contribute to the world is opportunities for anyone. No, nothing pisses me off more, Poppy, than when people use the term flipping burgers as the lowest form of work. Yeah. And we all do it. I agree. It's and feeding it is, us. It's serving us. It, it's, it's, it is a noble profession yes. where you can begin a career that can take you some really good places. Let me, I mean, I, can I, I just yes, have yes, to, yes, I have yes, to yes. press on that a little bit further because a hundred percent of the focus in this country, when we talk about labor has to do with minimum wage, really, really important. Our industry, I'm proud to say is probably alongside of government the second largest employer in the entire country. We're probably the first largest employer for first-time workers. What I'm not proud about in our industry is what happens next. And so what we have been dedicated to, and this gets back to the whole philosophy we started with the IPO, is how can we help people start here but then take the next step up, the next step up. And I love when I go to a shack and I meet managers whose first job in life was making a milkshake. And no one ever got that job by bringing their milkshake making resume. So <laughs> these people these people are often really advancing their lives and it's fantastic. And I'm the reason I ask you that is because I care about it deeply as a topic. Income inequality is something I've dedicated a lot of my you know, career to caring about and trying to report about. Um, a study just came out. I don't know if you guys saw it a few weeks ago in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, and it found that when the minimum wage was raised $1, $1, the suicide rate among young adults went down between 35 and 6%. And it's, it's not just about minimum wage, as you said. It's about opportunity and seeing something above you. And I wonder why you think you guys are and can succeed at that when so many in your industry just haven't. Because it's the core of everything we do. This Last year, we promoted 1,600 people in our not-so-big company. 59% of those promotions went to women. And because we are willing to not just say, yeah, you're going to start making $15, we're going to look at you and say, hey, Danny, you did a really good job today. I've had moments with hourly employees who break down in tears because no one in their life ever said that to them. And we create an environment. Our job as leaders is to create an environment where A players make the right decision. And I want to create an environment where great leaders are training future leaders at every level, at every level. And I'm going to add And it's hard thing. as hell, by the way. And Let we got to work on it every day. Again, in addition to what you're being paid a great job should be a place that makes you feel valued and makes you feel like you belong. And I believe that the biggest longing human beings have is to belong. And the team at Shake Shack, I've seen something quite beautiful where I've seen a new person come into Shake Shack. And when you rise to a certain level, you get a special shirt that says cross trainer, which means consistent reinforcement of Shack standards. Kind of cool thing. So people are, are earning merit. And a new member will come into that team and that the existing members will circle the new member and they'll go, one of us, one of us. <laughs> they do this. You have no idea how good that feels. So when we talk about the kind of you know, statistics you were just sharing, I think self-esteem and money I do are too. big players. And you know, I also think that um, benefits – like, there's no reason that I should have gotten three months off fully paid to have both of my babies and peep, everyone else in America shouldn't get that. I don't have the solution. I don't know if it's government paid, Congress. I don't know if it's you guys, the private sector. But that inequality is is pervasive. And that's one of the big the big issues here. Do you guys think about that? I mean, we I don't know what do. the and, benefits and we are. Offer for that. If you, we offer that as a leader in our company. You get, you get made up for the 12 weeks and we take care of you. Even for the... Entry level folks, not for the entry level today, but we we offer health insurance at twenty hours a week. Um, we offer four hundred one k 
opportunities for everybody. I mean, there are so many exciting benefits, and we're constantly thinking about and learning. One of the things we're we're spending a lot of time thinking about now is the four day work week. Uh, four day work week. I was going to ask you, you about beat that. You me to it. Um, for our leaders right now, we have about a third of our restaurants across the country who are managers are working four days a week. And we're listening, we're learning. There's so much to figure out about this. We're not ready to launch it. And who knows where it'll go. But we're hearing things like... It's retention. It helps you keep That's them. the goal. I mean, we want to, not just retention, but more applications. Can I work four days a week? I mean, that's, I've been trying to get it for me, but nobody seems to listen. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I have new parents or parents generally come to me yeah. and say... Do you realize how awesome this is? A fifth day of childcare is like the difference maker. You're saving in my them life. hundreds of dollars Massive. just in childcare. Childcare, commuting, everything. And it's just a change. So who knows if we'll be successful? It may not be for everyone. But you're trying. But you're we're trying. See. And we've got to keep trying things like this. Getting hungry? Shake Shack. We'll be back in a minute. All right, so I want to go back a little bit, and I want you to take me, Danny, to St. Louis. And you're a little boy Great growing city. up in St. Louis. Great city. Your mom's from an even better city. Where's your mom, mom from? She's from St. Paul, but she lives Minis- in St. Louis. Minnesota. In Minnesota. My favorite state. <laughs> oh, oh, Danny. Danny. I like when they call me Danny. What? <laughs> I finally shed the accent, but I miss it. What, uh, what did St. Louis teach you? St. Louis taught me that... The way restaurants make you feel is even more important than how good the food tastes. Now, if you were a restaurateur in St. Louis today, you would be offended to hear me say that because the food, as has been the case in so many cities, has gotten really, really good. It's an exciting food scene today in St. Louis. When I was growing up, it wasn't. Um, you know, it it was much more about, oh my gosh, they remember my parents' name. That meant a lot to me as a kid. It they remembered our favorite table. There was one restaurant called Chris's, and they knew that little seven-year-old Danny liked to sit under the cuckoo clock. How? Um, I just got that cuckoo clock sent to me in the Stop. mail. No. Not stopping. In fact, I just put it together. has the name Chris's right on it. Um, Send me that picture. That's called hospitality. Look, Provel cheese on a pizza only goes so far. Toasted ravioli, yeah, it feels good to me, but I'm not sure it's going to make it across America. <laughs> Although I got to say, if it hadn't been for St. Louis, I don't think we'd be focused on things like frozen custard and smash burgers and uh-huh. and milkshakes and all the kind of stuff that there were some good culinary things there. But to answer your question, hospitality, the power of making someone feel like you're on their side, even being more important than what's on your plate. You call it HQ. We do. Hospitality quotient. And that's what we try to hire for. We hire for hospitality quotient. Whether you're working at Gramercy Tavern or whether you're working at Shake Shack, we're looking for the exact same emotional skills. And someone who's got a high HQ is somebody who becomes happier themselves when they bring pleasure to other people. That's not everybody in the world. And by the way, you're not a better person because you got a high HQ, but you stand a better chance of succeeding in in one of our businesses. So you leave St. Louis. You come to New York. I think it's the night John Lennon was shot. And you're in this great, wild city full of opportunity, and you think you're going to take the safe path like I was. We both took the LSAT. I'm clearly not a lawyer. Uh, Same. And, but I didn't have a wild uncle like you did who like berated you for saying you were going to be a lawyer. Ta- take me back to how Danny went from I was going to be a lawyer or a journalist Maybe, I wanted to be maybe, you when I grew up, actually. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being you. So, you know, there's that. Uh, it, how, what happened? How'd that, how'd that sort of cart get off the tracks? Well, what, what really did get off the tracks but really hasn't gotten off the tracks is that I've always been, since I was in like sixth grade, watching the news every single night. So when I say I wanted to be you, my mom and I, our closest times, they weren't baseball. I did that with my dad. But I watched the news, and, and when I grew up, it was not too different from today. We had Watergate and Vietnam. We had family discussions, uh, often arguments at the dinner table because I had a Republican dad and a Democratic mom, and the dinner table was a place to work it out. And what I love about that is that food that we were eating was the thing we all had in common that provided the comfort, and at a certain point, you couldn't sustain the argument with a really good barbecued rib in your mouth. And so... There's something about that that I took with me. I dabbled in – I was the news director in college. Um, 
My first job after college was working at the um, the PBS station in Chicago, and then I worked in politics uh, for a presidential candidate mm-hmm. in 1980. Running his, his name was John Anderson, independent, independent. Um, he was running against Reagan and Carter. See, that was me, the middle child. Wanted to go straight down <laughs> like, the center. Don't upset anyone. <laughs> um, it's not that I didn't want to upset anyone. I just I liked what he stood for, yeah. and it was a great experience. I got a job that right out of college that I never should have gotten because all the talent was going Republican or Democrat. Cook County field coordinator, I got to go down and talk wow. to precincts and wards. And, and anyway, I came to New York after that just because I burned out from politics. And um, we got 7.5% of the vote. Not bad for an independent there you go. candidate. Um, and when I came to New York, I just wanted to live there. I loved jazz and horse racing and restaurants and theater. And so I got this weird job selling electronic tags to stop shoplifters. Really? Not really what I was cut out to do for a living. No, really. And, you know, I was sent all over the country teaching grocery stores in Detroit how to stop people from stealing steaks going to the wow. basement of department stores where they have jails. Did you know that? No. Um, and Glad i never been in one. So after three years, I turned out to be the top salesman in the company, and I was making a ton of commissions because I loved it, and I was good at it, and I kept putting all my commissions into this public company stock, which was NASDAQ at the time. It was over-the-counter, actually it was called, Checkpoint Systems. And the stock during the time I was there went from 2 to 13 and so at the end of these three years, I said, I got to do something with my life. Go be a lawyer, go be a journalist, or do something else because I can't. And because I got to get real and I'm sick of having everyone say, you're going to be selling those tags, tags the rest of your life. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So on the eve of taking my LSAT, because I did the thing that I thought I was supposed to do with my poli sure, sci degree. Sure. Me too. Um, Same degree, too. I just freaked out because I knew I didn't want to do it. And you're right. I took my uncle at dinner the night before my LSATs to tell me, guess what? You're going to be dead a whole lot longer than you're going to be alive. Yeah. Why don't you do the thing you're passionate about? And and I was too stupid or blind to know what that was. And it took him saying – well, it's scary. All I've heard. It's scary. It, it, well, what was weird is that I never looked at the restaurant business. He, he was a guy that said, all I've heard you talk about your whole life is restaurants. And it was not a valid career choice from a liberal arts degree yeah. back in 1984, yeah. 85. Nor in your parents' eyes, was it? Yeah, absolutely okay. not. In fact, I, I kind of fudged it. It was starting to be okay to be a chef. We were starting mm. to hear about some... You know, yeah. Ivy League trained chefs like Jeremiah Tower and um, Alice Waters and Wolfgang Puck and Joyce Goldstein and Mark Miller. And so I said, I'm going to be a chef. That was safe. But I didn't <laughs> tell him I was going to be a restaurateur. <laughs> so I went off to cook in, in Europe and learned a lot. But I also learned that I am much, much better as a generalist than as, you know, the kind of guy that's going to just go really deeply into one topic. Like being a chef. For you, Randy, you grew up in New York City. What did this city, which was so different, no one, not many people in here were a kid in New York City when you were a kid in New York City. But what did that? What did the city teach you about? Well, so I was I moved out of the city young. My dad was a doctor at Cornell Hospital, uh, and he was a pediatrician. And in the seventies in New York. You kind of left the city if you had the opportunity, which we did. And most of my upbringing was in New Jersey. Um, My dad taught me to never stop questioning. He's such a scholar and a brilliant guy. And he also said to me when I was sick during a Little League game, get your ass up to the plate and get a hit. We're down. We need you to get a hit. Um, My mom uh, is the kind of person who's almost 70 today, and she's the kind of person who sees no obstacles. She'll take Mm. my three kids to God knows where around New York City at nearly 70 years old. And she just, she's something wrong with her brain. Like she <laughs> literally doesn't see obstacles. Can she take my children with and, her sometimes? <laughs> and I learned that from her. And that's like, you know, it's hard. It's hard to be married to me and it's hard to work for me because but it I don't see a whole like, lot of obstacles. It sounds either. like a limitless upbringing. And I don't mean, of course, there's rules, but it means where your aperture is broad. We didn't have a whole lot. And our parents helped us to believe that we could earn anything. And that's, that's what we did. Talking about your dad and uh, teaching you to always question. Your dad, 
Danny, for you, um, your hero, your savior, I think it's safe to say someone you admired for so deeply, but someone who also shed tears mm. with you through multiple bankruptcies. And I think that it sounds like that crippled you for a while. What happened? Well, I'll go back to the, the hero part. Um, like Randy, my dad was my hero. He was my baseball coach. Um, great writer, editor, entrepreneur. He had been the managing editor of the Daily Princetonian. He's a really smart guy. Never had a problem coming up with an idea, but he had a real clay foot. And that was that he didn't know how to surround himself with incredibly talented people. He was really good at surrounding himself with with people he thought were loyal to him, but not necessarily people who were smarter in areas that he needed to be smarter. And that was a really, really important lesson. But getting back to baseball for one second, my story is a little bit different because I was so show-offy when he was my baseball coach because that that's my dad, so therefore I'm privileged. And he let me have it one day when I, I was letting the – I was mouthing off to the other pitcher, and my dad benched me wow. in front of the whole team. And he said, until you learn to talk with your bat instead of your mouth, you're wow. not getting back into the game. Wow. And, of course, he puts me back into the game in a really key situation – and I hit my first home run ever. Now, mind you, it went through the legs of the pitcher, the second <laughs> baseman, the right fielder, but I did get home. Um, not the prettiest home run ever. But look, he, the lesson I, I learned from him, and it, it, I wouldn't say it crippled me, but I would say that it slowed me down. It, it's the reason it took 10 years to open a second restaurant. It's the reason it took five years to open a second Shake Shack is that I unfortunately associated growth with his bankruptcies because each time that he had gone bankrupt with one of his businesses, um, it was it seemed to me that he was expanding too quickly. What I la later learned is that there's a lot of businesses that have expanded without going bankrupt. That he wasn't thinking about things like culture. He wasn't thinking about the things like compensating, corresponding skill sets amongst the people you surround yourself with. Can I go back to New York for one sec? Because I actually think it's one of the most important parts of the Shake Shack story. New Yorkers, almost none of us are here by accident. We're all here because we want to be the best at something all day, every day. And everything we do is harder, more expensive, and more complicated than doing it probably anywhere else in this country. And Somehow Shake Shack being born and all of that, if you look at the number of restaurant retail companies that have been born in New York City, it's almost none. TGI Fridays in the 1980s. Public companies. Public, big, real, think about the, the companies that have been successfully able to go from this city to America. Mm. It's been very hard. And there's just been something about this magic of being born in New York, having that as our aesthetic, our ethos, and yeah. our drive has been the lesson about of New, New York, York City, for us. the gift of New York. But I also think it's imbued with the gift of the Midwest. And I, I think that mm. the reason that there's really, um, I think there's been before Shake Shack two public company restaurants that had been born in New York. Huh. Um, TGI Fridays being one and Sabaro, I think, being the other, if I'm not mistaken. Oh my God, I ate so much Sabaro in college. Yeah, but, but what New Yorkers <laughs> love does not necessarily translate to it's what true, America loves. It's true, but this has. Loves. This so has. a very smart question that Haley, our producer, thought of, and as she often does. But why did you guys take Shake Shack, um, like, I believe you took it to Dubai before you took mm -hmm. it to L.A.? When the Harvard Business Review case study is written on Shake Shack someday, they will opine. I mean, on whether I, that one was the will most be written. You're, you're joking, but okay, but uh, why? Yeah, why? Danny and I were sitting at Eleven Madison Park in 2009. Remember, we had just opened our second Shake Shack. We didn't. I mean, if you had said we'd have five Shake Shacks at the time, that would have been the wildest thing ever. And a man named Muhammad Al Shaya came to us and said, "Come to Kuwait. Come to Muhammad." And I'm I'm kicking him under the table. And I'm like, "What? Who is this guy?" And, and I'm going, I'm Jewish. I've never even been to Israel. <laughs> Pure intellectual curiosity. We get on a plane and we're standing in the fountained space construction site that is now the Burj Khalifa. We're seeing the moment of the Middle East rising. And we looked at each other and we said a couple things. 
Um, if a tree falls in the woods in Kuwait, nobody's going to hear it. Like so if it doesn't work, it's okay. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> the second thing was, turns out we're creators and these guys are the best copy and paste company you've ever met. They have Starbucks, they have 80 brands. They have one of the greatest retail companies. Mohammed al Shai is a brilliant genius. And we said, let's just see if we can learn a thing or two. And before we even had 10 Shake Shacks, we opened in Dubai. Now, 40% of our company is overseas. We're in Shanghai. I'm headed to China next week. We're doing Beijing later this year. Um, it has become a massive part of the global brand. And we constantly take that learning back and forth around the world. Look, you can count on one hand the number of brands that sell anything mm -hmm. that can go to Manila in the Philippines earlier last year mm -hmm. and have thousands of people line up. And somehow this Shake Shack thing, selling the most mass appeal product in the world in the most wonderful way we try to do it with really nice people, has resonated in all these places. And there is so much learning for us around the globe. It's, it's a crazy, unique Weird, amazing. Part I, I want to share something because, because to the question yes. um, that that you just asked, yes. it wasn't obvious, obviously, because most U.S. food businesses that have gone internationally did so only after they had oversaturated in America. And what we asked ourselves was, what could we learn from a company that's great at at scaling? Because we don't yeah. know how to do that. Yeah. And can we have those lessons? out of sight of all of our fans. But then the other, the other cool thing that we had to overcome was, seriously, culturally, what's it like to go to the Middle East? And keep in mind, this is not that many years after things like 9-11 and, you know, are you really going to go do business over there and what are they going to do with all the money? And um, I'll never forget, I, I had a couple good conversations with some people who had done it before and they said, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever filled up your car with gas? Do you realize when you do that, you're importing something that's going to create pollution in America and exporting dollars that they're going to do whatever they're going to do with? I say, great. Yeah, okay. Well, when, how do you feel about your culture at Shake Shack? I feel great about it. How do you feel about what it says about America when you open a Shake Shack? Mm -hmm. I feel really proud about how we take it. What if, what if you export the thing you're proud about to. and import profits with which you can pay American taxes? How does that feel? <laughs> well, that was the argument that kind of got us over the hurdle. Speaking of that, and then we'll move on. Um, you brought up China. You have a lot of expansion in China right now. We're really excited. We have three shacks in Shanghai. We opened our first last year. It's been amazing. Beijing coming later this year. So with that comes a lot of money and profit, but it co comes a lot of complications and some pretty serious human rights issues and concerns right now just about the Chinese government and we're seeing the protests in Hong Kong. How do you wrestle with that and think about that? And have you had to deal with the Chinese government? Because um, like Bob Iger writes a lot about this in his book about, you know, opening all in China. And how, wh where is your head on that right now? Yeah, I think our head is always when we choose to go to another country, the size of the country doesn't matter. Opportunity doesn't matter. What matters is who we choose to partner with. Um, and we always look to work with a company that shares our values, can operate a great shape and takes care of their people. And if you were to go around the Shake Shack world, no matter where it is, Dubai, um, I wish I could hire every person we have in Dubai. They're incredible. Seoul, South Korea. Seoul, Japan, China. And you look at the jobs we're creating, the wages we're paying, and the way we're taking care of our team, you would go see the same values that we talked about today uh, 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 in China and making sure that our team is well taken care of in that environment. No business with the, with the government directly right now? No, that, that, is not, that has not been our... Um, so we have a license partner everywhere there. internationally. You have to, right. More from our conversation with Danny and Randy after the break. On breaking barriers, Danny, um, you know, I think many people in the room know here what you did with tipping, eliminating tipping and working it into the food and alcohol prices. Um, the New York Times editorial board, when you did that, applauded the decision. And I want you to talk about it and why you made it about, because it's an issue of equality, but why you broke that barrier, why you were generally first on that after decades ago being the first, you know, in 90 to ban smoking in your restaurants before New York City had done it. Like, what is it about you that gives you the, I don't know, guts, intestinal fortitude to do things that a lot of people aren't going to like and do it first? I think it gets back to the whole entrepreneurial wiring, which is 
that it's a whole lot more fun to try to see things that could solve problems for people as opposed to doing it just because that's the way it was always done. And I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and have a culture where we say we put our own team first and see what was happening in the fine dining restaurant world where year after year after year, the tipped employees were making more money every single year because a tip is nothing more than a multiplier of menu prices and menu prices go up every year. And meanwhile, the employees who do not qualify legally to receive tips, like also known as kitchen. cooks, yeah. anyone uh, who does not face the guest 80% of the time, it's a crazy law, does not legally qualify to accept a tip. And they're doing just as much work. And what I saw over the course of my career is that the disparity in in earning potential of those two categories was growing to the point that it was close to 300% difference. And so you'd have a crazy busy Friday, Saturday night, and uh, the waiters, I'm happy for them, the bartenders in the private dining room counting out their money, and the cooks just perspired more. And the, the, and the, the, bu- the men and women doing the busing, they don't get the tips either. They sometimes share in the tip pool, um, but... You know, it it depends. It the right. laws themselves differ by state, right? And that also creates all kinds of confusion. So, at a certain point, I said, you know what? Whoever wrote the rule that we have to have tips, it's not working. It's making it impossible for somebody to pursue a culinary career and live in New York City and feel good about themselves. So, look, we know that in almost every business on earth. The sales team tends to make at least a little more than the manufacturing team, but it doesn't have to get wider and wider and wider every year. And so we've narrowed that gap, and we're at a point right now where we feel really, really positively because even since we first instituted this in 2015 at The Modern, our cooks are now making 37% more than they were making back then. We have instituted... Um, a very, very generous family leave policy. We have a a savings plan, a 401k. Um, I feel really, really good about the fact that someone who used to have to work Friday, Saturday night just to pay her bills um, now can make as much money on a Monday night. Mm -hmm. What we have done, though, and this has not been reported uh, very well or, or thoroughly, is the headline is always they eliminated tipping. That's fine. But What people may not know is that we instituted something called a revenue share. And so if you work in one of our restaurants, in addition to getting a much higher than minimum wage hourly rate, you also share in the revenue of the restaurant. So the incentive to sell remains, and we're working on making this in most of our restaurants where that revenue share is is also shared with the kitchen so that on a really cranking busy night, kitchen made more money too. And it builds team, and and it's something that we're really excited about. And by the way, the courage that I got to do that was that when we opened Shake Shack, we didn't have a tip jar. And I said— That's where this came from. Well, it was the courage I got. You know, you go to coffee bars, et cetera, and it's like you pay four fifty for your cup of coffee, and they flip the screen around. Or and $6. Yeah. $6, and would you please add another yeah. two because I, know. I put a cup and on And you can't table. not, and you want, you should, but it's like my coffee $6. And, and, and we then, didn't do that at Shake Shack, and I said, you know what, if we can afford to not have tipping yep. at Shake Shack, hmm. for God's sakes, we should be able to do that at Gramercy Tavern and Mayolino and Union Square Cafe. I have a few more questions, and one is about diversity. When you look at the number of head chefs that are women, it's a minority by a long shot. If you look at the number of restaurateurs like you guys who are women, it's just not even close, not just in New York City, just across the country and around the world. And Danny, you said that a few years ago, you realized that your company did not have enough women at the table in senior positions. I think your board at one point, you looked, you said, Mike, this board is all white. So talk to me about that realization for you and what changed. I think what changed is twofold. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes slow to adopt things, whether it's new technology or, or, or new ideas, and sometimes I'm quicker than other people. But this is one where it was patently made aware. And my, I want to give my kids and my wife a lot of credit um, because 
my kids actually handed me my head. And, and I, really? you know, I was really proud that at, at that time we had a number of senior executives in our company who were women. Um, but it, it just it wasn't happening quickly enough. And, and by the way, you can't read all the Me Too stuff that, that started coming out a, a couple, three years ago and, and not say this is not just about men behaving badly. This is about not having the right voices at the right tables. So it's diversity and inclusion both. And so today... Well, but before you go to yeah. today, what, tell me about your kids. What happened? You come home from work one night and they let you have it? How Not did this... one night, many nights. Um, and this, you know, so our kids uh, today are, we have four kids, 20 through 26. So think about mostly in college. A couple are now out of college. And, you know, they're taking classes and, and, and my world is very yesterday as far as they're concerned. And it's just, you know, they're using... Um, different pronouns in, in school and couldn't understand why people's signatures on their emails in our company didn't have, you know, preferred pronouns. And I'm, I'm hearing things that I had just never considered, quite frankly. And, you know, I always thought that the way we treated each other and the highest, the highest responsibility you have if you work in our business is how you treat the people who work with you, even before how you treat our guests. I thought that was enough, and it wasn't. It just wasn't. And so we made commitments, and we are rapidly moving on it. I, I can tell you, Union Square Hospitality Group, um, we have an executive committee. Um, on our executive committee today are three men, one of whom is African-American, and we have five women and in C-level positions. And I feel really good about that because we're going to make better decisions for almost every single thing we do. And it's going to be much more fun to learn. And this all ties into sort of a, a moment of reckoning, I think an awakening moment for you guys at Union Square Hospitality Group. Two years ago, you come under scrutiny. There's this investigation by Eater.com of uh, sexual harassment, making some employees feel uncomfortable by one chef and one sous chef. And their complaint, these employees, was, you know, HR just didn't do enough. Right. It was sort of swept under the rug to you as a leader. As I understand it, you had no idea. So what did this teach you about leadership? Oh, boy, it taught me so much. First, I wouldn't say we swept it under the rug because we, some of them felt like that. They felt like that because one thing that maybe we made a mistake at and I struggle with this all the time is there were. There were lots of legal things going on in the background that we didn't publicize because it felt like it was personal information to those people. So perhaps it would have, in retrospect, it would have been better to have fired people much more quickly. And I can tell you that since that time, uh, the wick on our candle is way, way shorter than it used to be. You know, we, we do fair investigations. Um, when you've got a lot of people working, um, men and women in tight quarters, it's not unexpected that you're going to have sometimes creepy behavior. Thank goodness we didn't have one instance of predatory behavior, which you read about in so many different industries. But you know what? If someone feels uncomfortable, that's enough. Because if we're holding people to a standard in our company of being on someone else's side, well, you've crossed a line. If you're making someone feel creepy, you're not making them feel like you're on their side. And so I think the thing that we learned is that, that this is really, really serious. We stopped serving alcohol at, at company parties, which is sad. But you know what? Every single one of those situations somehow involved alcohol. Hmm. And uh, you know what? We just I, – I think our, we are so much smarter today than we were even three years ago. And I think that, that work should be a place – that no one feels afraid to go to. Work should be a place you feel excited that you get to go be with people from whom you can learn and feel respect. What have you, Randy, learned from, because Danny said this whole sort of journey for, for you guys, I think is fair to say, came from his children. You have three. What have your children taught you? They always know when we make a bad decision about a menu. <laughs> For sure. Including when we decided many years ago to switch to fresh cut fries in the shack. 
instead of our classic crinkle cut fries. And my kids were at the tastings and they were like, dad, these suck. And we we're like, yeah, but you're just stupid kids. What do you know? So we launched them anyway. And they were right. Um, you know, there is nothing like going home and telling a child about your day and having them look at you with total innocence and call you out on everything that is just true. You can't spin it to a kid. And my wife of 16 years is the most amazing partner and mom. And we're working on being a great couple first, great parents second. And if, if we do that well, I think we got a decent chance of being a good CEO someday. Yeah, I always say that. Well, you guys, thank you. Thank you. Quick applause. Thank you. Quick applause. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.